in the mid uh, to late 1990s, if you were to wander around any uh, reputable music shop uh, in the United Kingdom, you would begin to see a new site. You would begin to see parental advisory stickers uh, beginning to appear on both LP and tape and, and CD album covers. Parental advisory stickers. Uh, so what were these things? What were parental advisory stickers? Well, they were, of course, a warning. Weren't they? A warning that what was contained in those albums might be a little bit dodgy. You know, what's contained in the albums might be some bad language, some sort of gritty subject matter, and that sort of thing. Parental uh, advisory stickers. Right, truth be told, I was tempted to to stick a parental advisory sticker on uh, your notice sheet this morning. Why? Well, Well, not because... Uh, I foresee there being any bad language in the sermon this morning. Let's hope not. Uh, No, I was tempted to do that because I think you need to be warned. You need to be warned from the outset. You need to be warned that some of the material that we'll seek to cover just now is potentially controversial stuff. Some of the material that we're going to look at this week is difficult and truth be told, is actually potentially divisive material. But I don't want you to be misled. It's not the case that our theme this morning is uh, all sort of doom and gloom and misery. It's not like that. In fact, the portion of scripture that we're looking at this morning is is a wonderful, short, but it's a wonderful portion of God's word. Now, it's going to be a portion of scripture, I think, that, that challenges the way that we act, the way that we approach even the life of the church. And I think it's a portion of scripture that shows us how we can enter into the peace and the love and the salvation of Almighty God. It's a wonderful portion of scripture. And what I want us to do is to observe three elements that we see in these verses. Okay? So, that said, can I invite you to actually turn with me in the Bible? You know, just to have scripture. I think it will benefit all of us if we have God's word open there in front of us. To have, what is it, Mark 10, it's page 1014. Mark 10 from verse 13. This is the, the, the first aspect we need to consider. We see here the place of children in the affections of our Lord. The place of children in the affections of Jesus. That's the first heading. Okay, now, uh, before we had uh, a short break on our Sunday mornings, maybe you remember uh, that we looked together at a portion of Scripture on divorce. You remember that? Perhaps if you do, do you see how wonderfully fitting it is that Mark goes from that, the section on the importance of marriage, and he goes from that into a section now on the importance of children. Do you see how they, Matt, do you see how it dovetails? Do you see how fitting that is? Right? But how does this portion of scripture here come about? Well, if you look at it, you see that the section begins with people bringing their infants to Jesus. Okay, now, Although we're not told, presumably the people 
are the kids' parents, okay? And I said infants there deliberately. I said infants because not only does Mark use a sort of diminutive word form for the children, speaks of them as sort of three ones, not only that, but Luke, in the parallel section that he's got in his gospel, do you know what he refers to the children as? He calls them babies. So, do you see the sort of picture, anyway, at the beginning that you've got here? You've got parents, and they're taking their little babies, their little totty wee ones, and they're taking them to Jesus to be blessed. So that's, we've got that, do we? We've got the picture here. But then I ask you, what happens next? And isn't it a bit surprising? Isn't it kind of amazing what happens next? Because no sooner do those parents take their little babies to Jesus, or try to take their babies to Jesus, what happens? Straight away they're opposed. They're stopped from doing and, and do you see who it is that does that? It's the disciples, man. Like it's the people who are closest to Jesus who put a stop to these children coming to him. So maybe you see the question that we've really got to assess and answer. Why? The what on earth leads the disciples to stop children coming to our Lord? Well, as I look around uh, the hall this morning, and look around the church, I see that we've got a number of visitors with us this morning, and that is wonderful. We love having visitors in the church. But in the main, uh, most of you here have been at least through part of our sermon series in Mark's Gospel, right? So here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping you can remember a section of scripture that we looked at just a few weeks ago. Just pretend if, okay, just, you know, pretend if you don't. And see if the boys and girls can remember it as well. It's a section of scripture where Jesus was in a house in Capernaum. Do you remember it? And Jesus was sitting there and the disciples, the twelve disciples were with him. Jesus was teaching. Do you remember this? Do you remember what happened? There was a little toddler running around the house. Do you remember it? And Jesus scoops up the little toddler in his arms and takes him to himself. Do you remember that portion of scripture? Well, if so, do you remember what we said at that time? We said that in the ancient world in the first century, children, children were nothing. The children had absolutely no status at all in the ancient world. In fact, a, a person was regarded as becoming an adult, get this, just around the age of about 13 years old. And anything before that was just like an inconvenience that people had to go through, you know? It's not like it was today. Like children pushed to the side, marginalized. Nobody cared about children. And when you see that, doesn't it make a little sense of the disciples' actions here? Like, do you see what they're thinking? They're either thinking, Oh, Lord, he is above being associated with these little kids. Or worse, they're thinking, We are the disciples of Jesus. We are above being associated with these little kids. But anyway, you see what they do? Get rid of these kids. We do not want to see these little children. Now, Truth be told, couldn't we just camp out there as a congregation for the rest of our time talking about how hard of heart the disciples are being there? Like, couldn't we spend an eternity thinking about how slow they are to learn a lesson from the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't want you and I to do that this morning. 
We need to do something else. We need to note how our Lord responds. So would you do this with me? Would you look at verse 14? How does Jesus react to what he's seeing from the twelve? Let me read it. When Jesus saw this from the twelve, he was, now what's the word? Look at the word. He was indignant. I want you to appreciate how unusual that is. Do you know what? Nowhere else, if you read all of the Gospels just now, nowhere else are you going to find it said that Jesus was indignant about anything. This is a one-off. And do you see what it means? When Jesus sees the twelve stopping children coming to himself, he was angry. Like our Lord was righteously, perfectly annoyed by what the disciples did there. And what does he do? He immediately, instantaneously overrules them and he says, let these little ones, let these babies, let these children, let them come to me. Now, what do we learn? What do we need to be thinking about here? Well, first of all, what about this? Do we not see here that our God, your God, is a God of tenderness and love? You not see that there? Let me speak for a moment to the boys and girls of the church. So boys and girls, you can stop your colouring and your worksheets and just listen to me for a moment. Now you don't need to shout this out. I just want you to think about it. If I was to ask you this question, boys and girls, ready? How would you respond? If I were to ask you to describe what the God of the Bible is like, what would you say? Now you don't have to shout it out. But what words would you describe, what words would you use to describe the God of the Bible? Now hopefully, none of you would say that God is cruel, would you? You wouldn't say that God is cruel, you wouldn't say that God is uncaring. In fact, hopefully, none of us in here would think of him like that. Because consider for a moment the portrait that Mark is painting for you of Almighty God here. Did you see what you've got? What have you got in front of you just now? You have got the Creator God! That you have the pre-existent, incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of this section, what is He doing? God, what is He doing? He is cuddling a little baby in His arms. Are you staggered by that? Isn't it stunning? You have the sovereign Lord. You have the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth. And at the end here, he is perhaps rubbing the cheek of a newborn baby. He's looking down upon this new life with... Isn't the tenderness of God towards man here, isn't it almost bewildering? Then... Surely we also learn from that that the church of Jesus Christ must follow suit. And I I, I hope you see what I, I mean by that, do you? I mean, we live in a world just now where children, little children, are very often marginalized. Is that not the case? We live today in a society where countless children are pushed to the side 
aren't they? Even by their parents. They're pushed uh, to the side. Their children, they are uh, forgotten about as their parents try to get on living their own lives. Well, surely in Mark chapter 10, in light of this, we see that the church of Jesus Christ, we have to be entirely different to that. The church has to love children. We have to care for children. We've got to nourish children. Do you know what we've got to do? Why is this? We have to seek to take children to Christ. Let me apply that in two different ways. First of all, to the Sunday school teachers of LCPC. Are you a Sunday school teacher in here? Friend, listen to me. There is perhaps no greater work in this whole universe that you could be involved with. No greater work than Sunday school teaching. Does that sound ridiculous to you? I believe that it's true. I do. That to teach children the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is surely one of the greatest callings a person can receive. So this morning... You look at the verses, you study the verses, you see Jesus caring for little children, and you as a Sunday school teacher, you be encouraged in your work. But then secondly, of course, let me apply it to the parents of London City Presbyterian Church. The parents here. Look at us. As parents, we sit in this church, what is it, January the 15th. We sit here at the start of a year with 12 months stretching out before us. I say to you, if you're a parent, isn't the timing perfect? Isn't it perfect that now, just now, we evaluate how it is that we are teaching our kids the things of Christ in our homes? Isn't today the day that we should reassess these things? Because what are we learning here? We are learning that actually through our witness, through our teaching, through our example in the home, what does God want? What does he say? Let the little children come to me. Friends, don't you, don't you love what we learn about our triune God in these verses of scripture? Because we learn that our God is such a God of love that he values who? God Almighty. He even values the little ones. So we see the place, the place of children in the uh, affections of Jesus. Secondly, and much more controversially, uh, we also see here a picture of the veracity, a picture of the truth of infant baptism. A picture of the truth of infant baptism. Okay. There is perhaps no more divisive an issue within evangelicalism than what we're about to consider in baptism. Do we baptize children? Do we not baptize children? Um, what is baptism? Is that a gospel issue? These are things that divide churches, bring a lot of confrontation. 
So I want you to hear this before I carry on. Baptism is not something that should divide this church. Yes, baptism is important, but I'm increasingly of the opinion that baptism is most important. It's an incredibly important issue, a vital issue for us to wrestle with. But you need to understand that you do not need to uh, agree with our doctrinal position on baptism in order to become a member of this church. It's a very important issue. But we should be able to discuss this issue without disunity as Christians. That said, what do we believe about baptism? Well, what we don't believe, we do not believe that children are saved when they're baptized. We don't believe that. I need to get that out of the way just in case there is any uh, concern about that. We do not believe that. We believe, first and foremost, that baptism is a sign of God's working in the covenant. Maybe if you are a Baptist in here, I know there will be Baptists in the congregation just now, maybe even when I say that you see a point of divergence, do you? Because do you see what we're saying? We're, we're not saying that baptism is a sign of what man does. We're not saying anything about what centered on man. Baptism is a sign of what God does in his covenant of grace. So, I better back that up. Where do we get that from? Well, would you consider even the book of Genesis for a moment? What happens in the book of Genesis? Almighty God, he establishes uh, an agreement, doesn't he? He establishes a covenant with a man called Abraham. And what's the agreement? God promises to do what? He promises to be Abraham's God. Basically, it's the gospel, isn't it? In fact, it is the gospel. He promises to be Abraham's God. Abraham will trust in him. Now... There's the covenant. The covenant had to be accompanied by a sign in the book of Genesis. You all know what the sign of the covenant was in the book of Genesis, don't you? It was the sign of... Yes, sign of circumcision. There we go. Here's the key question. To whom was that sign to be administered to? Who was to be circumcised as the sign of God's grace? Abraham and his children. So I'm not being controversial here at all. We would all agree with this, I'm sure. So you've got, in the Old Testament, you've got, listen, you've got God's grace. And it is illustrated by a sign. And it's a sign for the believer and his children. There you go. There's the Old Testament situation. I'll say it again. You need to get this. God's grace, illustrated by a sign, circumcision, and it's to the believer and the child. We've all got that. That's that's not controversial. This is where it gets controversial. The question is whether that situation continues into the New Testament or not. See, that covenant with Abraham... The covenant of grace, does it continue into the New Testament or not? Now, let's think about it biblically for a moment. Please stick with me here. I would ask you this question. Where does the New Testament church begin? 
you would answer me Pentecost man begins at Pentecost well I ask you what is it that Peter says at Pentecost at the beginning of the New Testament church now you would expect if the arrangement with God from the Old Testament was going to change in the New you would expect well it's going to be Pentecost where we're told about it Peter's going to tell us here and do you know what Peter does at Pentecost he does exactly the opposite and at Pentecost Peter stands up in front of the New Testament church and he emphasizes the continuity between the Old Testament and the New do you know what he says he says People, Jews, Jerusalem, listen to me. New Testament church. The promise, gospel with Abraham, that covenant, is for you as well. He emphasizes the continuity. This Old Testament situation continuing in the new. Now, wait a minute. This gets us to the big, big, big question. You can see it coming. And we're saying that this covenant in the Old Testament is, as God calls it, an everlasting covenant. You ready for the big question? Does that then mean that like with Abraham in the Old Testament, that believers' kids are supposed to play a role in the New Testament? Is that what it means? Can I answer that question? Absolutely. That's what it means. And in fact... That is what Peter goes on to say. And I'm not making it up, I'll read it to you. Listen, Acts chapter 2 verse 39. Peter says this. Listen, remember, he's standing in front of the New Testament church. And he says, the promise, the gospel's covenant, it is for you and, listen to the words, it's for you and for your children. This is it. Yes, the covenant sign changes this side of the cross, as other signs do. It goes from circumcision and it goes into baptism. But do you see, in the New Testament, what you've been told by God, there's one everlasting covenant of grace and it's for you. But it's also, it's also for your children. Now, We could go to other portions of the New Testament and we could look at further evidence for infant baptism. You could go to Colossians chapter 2. So you've heard what Luke thinks because he writes Acts. You've heard what Peter says. Paul. Okay? Paul, in Colossians 2, he takes circumcision as a sign of the covenant for the kids and he places it alongside baptism. As a covenant sign. Paul does it as well. We can look at lots of different New Testament evidence. Do you know what? Perhaps you're not bothered by that. But perhaps if you're struggling with this, maybe you look at me and you say, I can dig the theological foundations of this. My problem's pragmatic, Andy. My problem with infant baptism is that there are no examples of infants being baptized in the New Testament. And what I would say to you is, yes, there are. What do you do with Lydia in Acts chapter 16? She believes, and on the basis 
basis of that belief, do you know what happens? The whole of our household is baptized. And maybe you come back to me and say, yeah, but Andy, come on, it doesn't specifically say, and then maybe Lydia didn't have any little kiddies in her household. I'd say one, <laughs> consider how large households were in the ancient world. Two, though, consider what God does with the objection. Consider how God orders it. What does he do in a couple of verses later? What does he do? He gives you the Philippian jailer. He believes in what happens. His household too is baptized. And then you're given Stephanus. And Stephanus believes in his whole household is baptized. Are we really going to start here? Are we really, really going to believe that none of these people had any children anywhere in their extended family? Really saying that? But I think, I think, the cherry on top is what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth. Because think about the Old Testament situation with Abraham. The kids are circumcised. They receive the sign. Why? To set them apart. Isn't that it? They're set apart, they're circumcised so people will know they are part of the visible community of God. That's the Old Testament situation. And what does Paul say to you? What does Paul say to the New Testament church? How does he describe children of believers? He says that children of believers are holy. He says, children of believers, what does holy mean? They are to be set apart. Do you see? It's not that we believe that in baptism little infants are saved, not regenerate because of baptism. But we believe, surely, that they are baptized to set them apart as belonging to the visible community of faith, the visible church. Now I hope you have followed that. I hope you see what we're saying. We baptize infants in this church not just <laughs> because it is the mere universal testimony of the early church. You need to know that. And we baptize infants in this church, not because it is the majority position in the 21st century. Why do we baptize infants in this church? Because we believe firmly that it is the testimony of the word of God. And can I anticipate your question, please? Surely your question is this. Why are you speaking about baptism? There's no overt mention of baptism in the portion of scripture. Why are you speaking about baptism? But can I ask you to think about it? Can I ask you to think about the text and what is happening theologically in front of you? Think about it. Believing parents and Luke's gospel makes it abundantly clear that they are believers. The parents have gone to Jesus for grace. You have got in front of you in this text, believing parents taking their little children to our Lord for grace and for blessing. And I ask you, 
What is it that Jesus says to them? Look at the end of verse 14. What does our Lord say of children of believers? The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What do you do with that? Surely, when we look at God's word from beginning to end, and we study these things, surely we must see, we must recognize and acknowledge that children of believers in the old covenant and the new, they have a special place in the heart of our God. And then the third and last thing we see here is the pathway to entrance, the pathway that leads to the kingdom of God. Okay, so we've seen that Jesus' love extends to little children. We've seen that the kingdom of God belongs uh, to children. Do you know what? What I think we close with here is something altogether different. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Because, can I put it as simply and bluntly as I, I possibly humanly can? What you are shown towards the end of this section is the way to be saved. <laughs> I don't know if this is the first time that you have been in church. I don't know if you are infrequent in church. I don't know where you stand before God, but what you have before you in this portion of scripture is the way to glory, the way to heaven, the way to Jesus, the way to be saved, the way to have your conscience cleansed, the way to have the guilt removed. It's here. It's here and now. So what does Jesus say? Verse 15. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child, they will never enter the kingdom of God. I think that has been uh, misinterpreted. I think we misunderstand that frequently. Because we could look at it like this. We could think, oh well, yes, Jesus is telling us that we have to try and achieve and adopt the characteristics of little children in order to be saved. Don't we think of it like that? You know, we look at little children and, and, and well, dare I describe little children? What are little children like? They are accepting, aren't they? Accepting little creatures. They are uh, perhaps naive little creatures too and we perhaps look at what Jesus is saying there and we think right I have to become more accepting I have to become more naive if I'm, if I, if I'm to be saved if I'm to be entered the kingdom right? we look at it like that and I want you to see that is not what our Lord is saying see I stood in front of you a few weeks ago and I spoke about the very first time that I held my firstborn child in my arms do you remember that? I uh, held my little boy in my arms in the maternity suite. It wasn't a suite, was it? <laughs> maternity dungeon. <laughs> I held the little boy in my arms and I looked down at, at the, the baby and I, I, I wondered what lay ahead for him. 
And it's like, I never told you the other thing I thought about. I looked down at my newborn baby, this new life, and I looked and I thought to myself, he looks pathetic. I I didn't mean it nastily at all. But don't you see what I mean? Like I held this little baby in my arms and he's just a few minutes old and he's tiny. And I thought, he looks so wee. And he looks so frail. And he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he looks so weak. And he looks helpless. And don't you think that that is what Jesus is saying to you this morning? In these verses, he's holding a little baby in his arms and he's saying, look, unless you see that you're like this, like unless you see that you are frail, unless you see that you are weak, unless you see that you are helpless, unless you see that you can only be saved from outside of yourself, the salvation is only from God, unless you see that helplessness, you will never enter into the kingdom of God. You will never be saved. So, so I ask you this, this morning. Is it true for you that, that today, as you gather in here, you know in your heart of hearts that you are outside of the kingdom of God, but looking in? Like, do you know that? Like, you, your conscience laying that on you this morning. Do you know I'm not right with God? I know that by my conscience. I know that by my heart. I know that my sin. I'm not. And you see? You see that helplessness? Friends, let me ask you another question. Is that sense of frailty real to you this morning? Is there an increasing awareness in your life that by your nature and by your actions and by your attitude that you have offended God and there is nothing that you can do about it? Do you know your helplessness? Do you know that you are too weak to save yourself? Can I say something surprising to you as we end? If that's you, you are in a potentially wonderful place this morning. Because do you see what it means? It means today in here you are but one prayer away from eternal life. If you will only move from that place where you recognize your helplessness, And if you move from there to a place where you confess that inadequacy and sin to God, a place where you lean on Jesus for forgiveness, then entrance into eternal life, it will be yours and it will be yours today. Will you not do that? Do you not want to do that? While you have breath in your lungs, while you have time, while the Holy Spirit pushes you towards that, Just let me say this. What happens in salvation? What happens in the kingdom of God? Can I tell you that Mark chapter 10 happens in the kingdom of God? If you call out to Christ, you confess your sin. The almighty and eternal God, he sweeps you up like a little child. And he takes you to himself. And you will be safe and sound in his arms forevermore. That's what happens 
in salvation. Will you not confess your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Will you not come to know what is the tender mercy of Jesus? Let's pray.